Hello and welcome to The Camera Report, brought to you by WaterfootFilms.com. I'm Sean Malone, and today I have the pleasure to speak to a still-rising star in the world of cinema, Harris Zamberlukas, BSc. Harris Zamberlukas is a world-class cinematographer whose director of photography credits include Venus, starring Peter O'Toole, Kenneth Branagh's Sleuth, the musical star-studded spectacular Mamma Mia, and last but not least, his second collaboration with director Kenneth Branagh, and this summer's comic book blockbuster, Thor. Harris grew up in the island country of Cyprus and studied fine art and filmmaking at Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design in London. He went on to receive his MFA in cinematography from the American Film Institute in Los Angeles. Shortly thereafter, he had the opportunity to intern with legendary cinematographer Conrad Hall ASC on the film A Civil Action. He's a member of the British Society of Cinematographers, and he also serves on the BSC's Board of Governors. Harris joins me today from London, England. Harris, thank you so much for being on our show. It's a pleasure. Great to be on, on air with you. I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about something that really stands out to me when I'm looking at your body of work, and that's actors. When I became more familiar with your work, I was just amazed at the litany of legendary actors that you'd worked with. It seemed like when I was impressed by one, then I'd find out about another. Then I'd like to name a few for our listeners. Meryl Streep, Colin Firth, Michael Caine, Pierce Brosnan, Natalie Portman, Jude Law, Guy Pierce, Anthony Hopkins, Stellan Starsgård, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Daniel Craig, and Peter O'Toole, just to name a few. Your career is pretty young. Is there anybody left for you to work with? Oh, there's lots. I'm just beginning. How should a director of photography treat and relate to actors, and how is that relationship special? It is a special relationship. For me, I think, um, firstly, I always thought the most interesting thing to photograph was the human face. Certain actors, it's pretty much a landscape of the human heart, their, their face. So I've been lucky with that. I guess maybe the reason I got to work with all these actors is I've worked predominantly with theatre directors. And I live in the UK. I also work in the States, and I've studied in the States, but um, most of my films have been in London. So we have, we have great actors here and great theatre directors, and they often make films. And I just was lucky enough to work with a lot of them, or a few of them at least. Could you elaborate a little more about um, that special relationship you were talking about? I think you kind of have to know exactly what an actor is going through in a particular scene, so that you can be on the same, um, uh, you can have some synchronicity with them. And I think they end up appreciating that because they don't feel vulnerable and they feel like your the performance only exists if, if you can actually capture it and that you can capture it without interfering. And I guess that just comes from being prepared and understanding what's going on and being able to enhance the, the mood and the atmosphere emotions through lighting and camera work that don't interfere with the performance. I think it's as simple as that, really. So would you say the rules are any different with high-profile actors or kind of legendary performers that you've worked with, or is it is it pretty much across the board? For me, it's across the board. I treat everyone exactly the same way. As much I admire these actors, I mean, people like Peter O'Toole, yes, you're, you're, you're kind of in awe meet them, but I think it's just, it's just correct etiquette to treat every actor in the same way. You talked about the human face and 
that was something I noticed when reading about your work is that you take that aspect of your work, specifically portraiture, very seriously. Can you talk about the importance of portraiture in filmmaking and why you feel it's so important? I think that's in the end what um, the audience relates to. And that's not taking away landscapes, effects work, etc. All the other fantastic components that make a film compelling and interesting and beautiful and creative. But the human connection, I think, between the audience and the actor really comes through portraiture. Even if it's a silhouette, there's a way of making it engaging. There's a way of making it accessible. And I'm not, there's no technique to it or, or rules to it. I just think it's a, an aspect that is really dominant in the way you should shoot a scene. Do you feel like that's where maybe some real big effects movies might go afoul? Is it not giving the attention to that, that human aspect? I think so. can be. I've noticed a lot of films that way. And one thing that was just absolutely brilliant about the way Kenneth directed Thor, when he was really paying attention and, and fastidious in, in kind of helping the actors out with the more green screen and less sets we had, the more he kind of just paid special attention to making sure that the actors were fully aware in their head where they really were in the film, that is. And he'd conjure up all kinds of techniques and ways to assist them in that. And at some point, Tom Hiddleston, who plays Loki, turned around to me and said, Harris, you know, one of the things, I mean, like, Ken is just relentless on this, on this green screen work, and everyone else I've worked with just isn't that uh, fastidious about it. And the one thing that Tom said was that all those years that rather doing mime acting, which he thought at the time was outdated and useless, finally came into like full use on the heaviest of green screen uh, days on full. And I think it takes kind of a director of that caliber who's also acted something to acknowledge that and deal with it in a certain way. Can you share some lessons that you've learned from actors that maybe have made you a better cinematographer? The one thing you get from actors is that you, you really you, you can't mess up a single shot. I can maybe like the scene in a studio again the same way. I may not be able to get the same sunset again, but um, really for an act, every performance is a sunrise or a sunset. It just you just got to be ready and you've got to get it to get the performance. Yeah, you're you're a member of the British Society of Cinematographers, and you also serve on the BSC's Board of Governors. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Can you tell us how you became a member and, and what it really means to be on the Board of Governors? To become a member of the BSC, you have to be nominated by two members of the BSC, and then it's put to vote across the board. There's um, a requirement, amount of films that you've done, um, et cetera, et cetera. And Phil Mayhew and Alex Thompson nominated me and put me forward for the board. So I'm very grateful to them. And being on the board has been fantastic. I thought if I'm going to be a member, I might as well be active. I'm very, very, very proud to be a member of the BSC because I've just admired all the cinematographers that have been uh, members. And cinematographers like talking to each other and being around other cinematographers. And being a member of something like the BSC just gives you 
opportunities and social events where we can talk and share stories and have a kind of a support for each other. And it tags along from my days at film school where I learned a lot more from my fellow students, pretty much more so, you know, in a respectful way than my teachers. Right. Um, because you were uh, working with them and talking to yes, them. Yes, and, and going through kind of the similar kind of uh, issues of overcoming problems, uh, our own inability at the time to tackle something, you know, those things. It was uh, on a kind of similar level. And I kind of feel that by being a member of the BSG, I can almost be back in film school again. You talked about Phil Mayhew and Alex Thompson. Are those mentors of yours? Would you consider those guys mentors? If so, could you? Um, who, who are your mentors, I guess, is what I'm asking. The late, great Alex was someone I had met. I think I first met him at Camry Marge. I really just always enjoyed since then. Camry Marge 2000 or 97 even. And I always greatly enjoyed talking to him. I was always a huge fan of his films. We just, you know, I had previous to being a member of the BSC, had met him at certain festivals and other BSC events that I was invited to. Phil Mayhew, same thing. Um, and with Phil, we've since become friends. And he was, he's definitely someone I, I call upon for advice. I would consider my mentors people that I've met at an even earlier age. Definitely my art school teacher, Nikos Gurushis, back in Cyprus, and Mary Pat Lease when I was at uh, St. Martin's School of Art. And then the biggest influence for me and the person I interned for and had a friendship and a mentorship with uh, was Conrad Hall. That's so wonderful that you got to work with with a legendary cinematographer like Conrad Hall. And I, I would imagine you, when you meet people for the first time, that's often the thing they ask you about, am I right? Yes. And uh, he, Conrad was such a well-loved and much-admired man. That, yes, people. It's amazing how many people I also find that they were like, you know, he gave me the first break too, and he helped me with this. And boy, he always answered calls. And, sure. Um, even on the, you know, he was a very, very generous human being. I'd like to talk to you real quickly about um, your background in painting. And I, I understand you studied painting. And I, I feel like it really shows in your films, like Sleuth and Mamma Mia and Thor, for instance, just in the compositions and the way you light. And I, I wondered, how does that training as a painter inform your work as a cinematographer? Well, for me, it was ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a painter. So uh, when I went to study, I wanted to study fine art and painting. However, I was I was born and raised on a small island in the Mediterranean. Cyprus is a population of six hundred thousand people. You can't even dream of going to work in cinema. It just seemed unrealistic. When I went to St. Martin's, one of the great things about the UK uh, art school system is you do a foundation course, which is pretty much the best you have ever had at university. You just try everything. You try film, theatre, etc. And in that, I uh, took film. And I pretty much stopped painting and switched. That's what I wanted to do. I don't really see much of a, for me, much of a difference uh, between painting and filmmaking. Also, I kind of preferred the older uh, uh, painters and reading about their lives. And it seemed to be a bit more similar to being a cinematographer in that they weren't stuck in a room on their own uh, with a, a lot of angst and kind of, deep, deep, deep soul-searching. They were commissioned 
to do certain things. Some things they love to do and, right. and were close to their heart, and some things were just work. But what was undeniable in all of them was that they just had to paint every day. It was a necessity. And in a way, I think in modern times, a cinematographer is not that dissimilar. And I think I speak for most cinematographers and we really hate, in a way, being called artists and much prefer being called technicians or craftsmen. But I think if you go back to those days where you were either asked to do a family portrait or if you were um, uh, lucky enough to Sistine Chapel, um, <laughs> that's kind of how it worked. <laughs> right. um, and if you read a lot of lives of these painters, you would realize things like Rembrandt was probably um, uh, happier doing an intimate portrait than, you know, Nightwatch, for example. Mm-hmm. And that goes the same for the kinds of films I think we as cinematographers choose. Sometimes it's great to do Sathor, but it's really, really satisfying to do Sleuth or Venus. And for me, probably more so. You talked about your education and, and kind of getting interested in cinema. What really inspired you in that time of your life to become a cinematographer? What really started your interest in that? I think it was a realization that films were not just kind of going to the cinema and that there was a side of motion picture that was clearly in the fine art world. And that's where I, I started. I started because I saw things like Oceana and Dalu and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And from then on at St. Martin's, it was a very experimental uh, film school. And what we looked at was Dan Brackage and Maya Deren and uh, Len Lai. And I was really, my first, the first things I made were uh, kind of Len Lai inspired films. So no camera whatsoever. I'd draw on film and scratch black leader and use lecture set and stamps and uh film from uh the film bins in uh in Soho that they'd throw out whatever was scrapped and then I'd recontact print that and change the colours and paint on top of it and then recontact print it and splice all that together. We'd make soundtracks using old Revox tape machines and loop things kind of the way people sample now. From that, I kind of got a, a certain amount of uh, things out of my system in the way and said, oh, now I want to do narratives and I wanted to shoot other people's films. I wanted to create the images of people's scripts and stories. And I went to a very different extreme after that and said, oh, I want to go to AFI and do a postgraduate course only in cinematography that deals with kind of how to make a really classic Hollywood film. Because by that point, I started loving, you know, films like The Godfather and Days of Heaven and In Cold Blood and all the film noir films like Key Men or um, Naked City or Sweet Smell of Success, films like that. But it was a progression. And I think I had to progress from where I I kind of started, which was a fine art beginning, um, to a more uh, narrative uh, conclusion where I am now. You spoke to sort of being commissioned and, and doing the work every day, and I know that you shoot television commercials as well. Can you tell me what's helpful and, and beneficial about shooting TV commercials, and, and, and how, how is it unique in terms of you know contrasting it to features? I really enjoyed shooting uh, TV commercials, and when they were still around, I enjoyed shooting music videos. Firstly, they're short projects, and they like short films. Secondly, they can be hugely experimental. 
I've tried most of the techniques I've used on film in a commercial or a music video. And it also, for me, gives me an opportunity to work on short projects and wait for a script that I really would love to do in the feature world rather than going from script to script even if I didn't like something. There's not a film I've made that I don't love. And I think the reason I've been able to do that is because I've had commercials to keep me occupied in between. So in terms of just choices I've had to make as a filmmaker, it's been hugely helpful having a commercial career to fall back on. Well, let's talk about a film that I really love, which is Thor, Mm -hmm. directed by Kenneth Branagh. You shot a film with Kenneth prior to that, uh, which was Sleuth. How did you connect with with Kenneth Branagh for the film? I got a call from his producer, Simon Mosley, to go meet him. At the time, I had just uh, finished Testifying Acts for Julian Armstrong, and uh, my agent was very happy because Kenneth usually asked people to come see him and, and won't take an agent's suggestions. Uh, it's usually he's, he, he's seen something that he, he's liked. And I think he, he really, he really liked um, Enduring Love. That was the film that I think he saw of mine that uh, tempted him to contact me for Sleuth. We met and had a great meeting. Um, I also told him that when I was much, much, much younger and I'd finished St. Martin's, I, I used to work at Television Shepperton as a, a camera desk training, and I used to uh, take batteries to his set, and I'd get half an hour to watch him him work with uh, Roger Pratt, and he figured at that. On uh, on Frankenstein. On Frankenstein, yes. And then a few days later, he offered me the job, so I I, I, I jumped at it. <laughs> Were you? It was a dream, a dream project. You've worked with Kenneth twice now, and. I, I was wondering if you could talk about what the working relationship between you guys is like. It's a fantastic process. I mean, I greatly enjoy it. He's, he really thoroughly does his research and his prep, and he invites you to be part of that. So our prep for a film is just a, a pretty interesting journey into the world we're about to explore. and. That might be talking about the psychology behind the character to either images, films, uh, photography, paintings that might also talk about that particular human condition or that landscape. And we start building up a library of ideas and look, we almost always rehearse at the end, like a play, but we move, we kind of find, find camera positions and then bring the rest of the crew in again before we shoot and, and show them that, especially the camera crew. So that it kind of, there's a, a research, a visual research part, and then there is actually a rehearsal part, which he does with the actors that I'm involved with. It's usually myself, the script supervisor, the first assistant director, Kenneth, and, and the actors. And uh, they rehearse. And then they take breaks every 15, 20 minutes, and then we discuss how we would shoot that rehearsal. You were in pre-production for, I, I read, three months on Thor, is that right? I was doing three months full-time and about uh, seven months on and off. Can you walk us through that process? I mean, what's, what's involved on a, on a day-to-day basis during pre-production? On a film like Thor, I mean, it starts off with, um, it started off with uh, 
screen test to find Thor. So we screen tested a few actors until we concluded on on Chris. And then uh, what had happened is the production designer, the brilliant Bo Welsh, had already started. And so had Wes Siebel, the visual effects supervisor. And they'd come up with some initial drawings and ideas of looks and effects, basically uh, of interpreting the script. I also had to catch up on the comics and the artwork. I mean, I was familiar with Phil, but not to the kind of level that you need to to embark on a film like this. And I started bringing in my research and the things that I wanted to kind of maybe experiment with. And we kind of put them all on the table. Alex Burns was also involved, our, our costume designer. Um, and working for someone like Marvel, you get illustrated. So you put all of this together and you start saying, this is kind of how I see this. And, uh, and, and they start producing illustrations. I start testing. And I mean, film tests, we do, you know, I think we did about 16 to 20 days of actual film tests on, on camera of various ideas and techniques. And the previous then becomes a huge part of it. The previous process um, is really intensive on a film like this. Because you can't just recreate this world on the spot. So eventually this would lead to previous artists interpreting what we had told them. And then these edited previous sequences were discussed and analyzed and, and thought through right up until the day we were shooting and continued even while we were shooting when new things were added. What was your visual inspiration for Thor? Is it mainly, mainly taken from the, the comic sources? I mean, definitely kind of Simonson and, um, and, and Kirby as, as illustrators. I also thought that they, those two illustrators were hugely inspired by uh, William Blake, and I've always loved Blake's uh, paintings, and especially in the composition, I think. We were very much inspired by that. Edward Hopper for the uh, New Mexico landscape, definitely the most kind of profound influence on us there. And then I was, I also thought that there was something about Early David Lingwood, in particular, Oliver Twist, and the Dutch angles in that, that seemed to be a bit larger than life and very comic book-like. And so we, we looked at films like like that and Third Man, and 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 it we just we thought, what are other film, other classic films that have a a comic book look to them, and our impression was that it was filmed like like The Third Man and, and Oliver Twist more than, say, Sin City, for example. So those were major inspirations, for sure. According to Wikipedia, which we all know is, is infallible, Thor had, <laughs> Thor had a budget of $150 million. So uh, my question to you is, can you talk about the practicality of working on on such a massive Hollywood picture, like how do you how do you organize and delegate and give attention to every single shot with that kind of scale at stake? Um, funnily, it's exactly the same as doing a smaller film. You, you just have to plan everything. You get more days, and you know I use similar uh, crew members. We just you know, I had a great crew. We we thought about these things together, made plans. I don't think there's any kind of magic formula to this. You just have to start at the beginning and be persistent and 
consistent with it. Trust your instincts? I think so. And, and, and then be able to demonstrate something to a, a kind of large amount of people that have to sign off on all of these things and explain your reasons why you, you, you need, need to spend that much money. Um, you have to give them a visual reference of it more than talking about it. That's what I found. That if I wanted to do something and it was expensive, I would ask for a test and I'd show them the benefits. Um, and then we'd all discuss it. And, and a lot of ideas, I said, oh, you know what, it's really not worth spending the money on that. That was an idea, but looking at it now, um, I don't think it's worth it. And we'd move on and find something else. On the other hand, was it sort of a relief to have the resources to be able to do those tests and to experiment? It was, but I've always tested on small films, on, but with a smaller testing budget. All the films have been, I've worked on, including Thor, to kind of, from camera obscura to Thor, have all been more ambitious than our budget. We, we I certainly couldn't do everything I wanted to do on Thor, and I had to do huge cutbacks and, and kind of compromises. And it was just as frustrating in that respect as it was uh, doing Venus. Because Venus was written to be made at that budget, and filmmakers always have more ambition than their budget. <laughs> right. <laughs> it works the same on a on, on a on a big film. Unfortunately, it doesn't get better. <laughs> Thor was shot in two D and then converted to three D in post. Yeah. Uh, and I was wondering if you could just talk about your feelings about three D in general. I, I'm not the biggest three D fan. I, I, when it's done well, I love it. Um, and for the right story, I think it's great. And there's huge benefit to doing a film like Thor, at least releasing it in 3D. I'm certainly not a fan of shooting 3D. I've never found a rig that uh, works the way I would like it to work. I find them slow, cumbersome, and above all, they're digital. And the images look like video images. I mean, I, I have to say, you know, I do like the Alexa, but... Red camera images to me are, are not something that lies within my um, acceptable uh, aesthetic. Uh, I think it suits some films and some, um, but it certainly wouldn't suit a film like Thor, in my opinion. Why is that specifically about the red? There's just an, there's a, I think a, a kind of barrier between, for me, the audience and the actors. It seems artificial to me. And I didn't want that. Uh, again, and it goes back to what we originally talked about in trying to make Thor um, a human story. I, I wanted to use the best portraiture techniques I could. And uh, for my aesthetic, for other people it's different. Um, I get that with film. So I wanted to shoot film and I wanted to shoot anamorphic. And you can't do that and shoot 3D. 3D conversion is now at such a level um, um, if you pay attention to it, like we did on Thor, that you can't tell the difference. And we did do tests. We did tests where we took a camera and we shot one, we shot in 2D, and then uh, we took one eye and converted it, and we all sat in a room and watched about 10 shots and saw the, the, the converted ones and the real 3D ones, and down to highly qualified kind of VFX people to... You know, all of us, it was just, it was kind of, it was like flipping a coin trying to tell the difference. Sure. And that's when a conversion's done well. There, there have been some awful conversions, and there's and there have been some awfully shot 3D films that have been shot 3D really badly. 
There's no silver bullet, in other words. There's no silver bullet. You pick your battles and, and you make your choices. And uh, that was mine. And I'm very happy with that choice. I would do it again. You're able to supervise that process, though, right? Or at least advise on the, the conversion process. I was involved with it, as was Kenneth, as was Wes Sewell, the uh, VFX supervisor, and, and the producers. So we actually, we all cared about it. We didn't just hand it over to a company to do the conversion. Are there parallels there between, because I know you were able to, to do that on the 3D work, were you able also, on a film like this, to be involved heavily in with the effects guys, with the effects work in post, and, and to get to work with the effects artists? I had a lot of work. I had a lot of work to do with our effects team um, in pre-production and during production. And then my work with Wes uh, was really in color grading the plates and elements as they came along. So that by the time we got to the end, we did our, our final uh, color correction, uh, things were in sync. What's the most gratifying moment for you while making a movie? <sighs> It isn't afterwards. It's looking through the camera and creating a shot. That's definitely the most gratifying, especially when it's... Um, and it's just as exciting and fulfilling to see a shot you've planned. I mean, the balloon sequence, the final bit where uh, the balloon flies off in the in Enduring Love, to finally kind of look like that's just how we kind of drew it and imagined it, and it's for real. Things like that are amazing. And then the improvised moments where you, you just get a gem that you didn't know you were going to get. The Conrad Hall moments? I mean, he, he, what Conrad kind of, apart from capturing so many of them, the one great thing about Conrad on that is he so eloquently described it. And I think his passion for it was just so overwhelming that um, I think of all the cinematographers out there, he's managed to... Uh, just put words to it. We're not a very eloquent lot, but he was. <laughs> <laughs> in 1997, you graduated American Film Institute and you interned with uh, Conrad Hall ASC shortly thereafter. And then 13 years later, you were shooting a $150 million movie. Can you tell us about that journey, that 13 years, and, and how you got here from where you were? Uh, well, I've been working all, all the time since then. I haven't had a lot of holidays, <laughs> that's what you mean. Um, I, I, I don't know, it just, it, just, it just happened. I also worked before that. I started working quite early on. My first assisting job, I was 19 on a film. In, uh, my summer holidays, I spent working on either as a camera trainee or whatever I could get on production. So by 1997, I'd already had eight years' experience. It was soon after that, in 99, I believe, that you shot your first feature. Am I right? Yes. And, and again, that, again that, that I would de definitely put down to. Uh, we were very lucky with Hamlet, who was a classmate of mine from AFI, to get um, a feature funded. And especially in the days when, you know, for $800,000, you could make a film on 35 mil. It was a great script, and it, I think it's a great film, but we it was also... You know, in a way, helped by the fact that people like Panavision put us in the new filmmakers program, and Norlin Core at uh, uh, Kodak was like saying, "Do you want some more dented cans? Because we can't sell these, but you can have them." The 
film industry is so generous uh, in its sponsorship uh, of young filmmakers. We really take it for granted. I, I, I think they, they very much, it is the uh, Panavision's, Kodak's, Deluxe's of this world, I think, that subsidize this industry and make it work, uh, much more so than tax rebates and uh, the rest of that stuff. And um, and it's not through official programs. So I think these people just don't get the recognition. I found them throughout my uh, life to be a huge help, and I wouldn't have gotten here without them. So that comes in the form of help for short films. Can I come in and, and test a new camera? Can I try a new lens? Um, uh, I've, I've got a. Uh, I know we don't have the money for this uh, bit of equipment on the film, but could I have it for a week? Because I have a sequence. You know, things like that. They go a long, long way. Um, you know, that's how you create compelling images, by having the right tools for them. And uh, more often than not, production can't afford them. What's the best advice you can give to young and aspiring cinematographers? I think the best advice for anyone is to really be introspective about what it is about cinematography you love and to follow that. And that that path doesn't always lead you to being a cinematographer. Cinematography is a huge field, I think, and it includes, for example, being uh, a colorist, uh, doing a DI. It includes being a loader. Um, don't forget that, you know, we use the word uh, focus, color, etc., but that is the second assistant camera operator. Um, you know, a dolly grip, is a, to me, is, is a camera operator. All these aspects I think I wanted to be a cinematographer early on and realized that. But I would have been just as happy um, if inside of me I felt I was an operator. And I think I see some frustration in people that they're not getting um, maybe ahead as much as they'd like to be getting ahead. And what they're failing to see is what a great talent and gift they have uh, where they are. And that it's usually other people's kind of you know, someone nagging saying, don't you want to be a DP? Um, sure. When there's the inner voice says, I really enjoy being a first assistant uh, camera operator, uh, being by the side of someone like Conrad Hall, for example, and being a part of that team. And um, I'm the one that makes sure that Robert Duval's eyes uh, are sharp. You know, those things, no one can answer those questions for you. Um, and I think you really kind of listen to other people's opinions about that. I think that will lead to a far more fulfilled uh, life and career in the film industry. Well, Harris, I want to thank you so much. You've really shared a lot of interesting insights with us, and I'm personally very grateful to you. Uh, I want to tell folks about your website. Um, if you want to learn more about Harris's work, you can visit www.zamberlucos.com. And what's next for you, uh, Harris, our... Are we uh, to expect a Thor 2 in your future? Well, I think a Thor 2 is uh, coming out, but um, from what I understand, Kenneth has said no to that, so it's up to Marvel and, and, and the, whatever director makes that to to the cinematographer. Um, I enjoyed making Thor, and there's, I'm not quite sure what film I'm going to do next, but uh, in the meantime, I'm enjoying making commercials. Well, whatever film it is, we'll definitely look forward to the, the painterly images that you lend to your films. 
you're a skilled and consummate cameraman, and we feel so privileged to be able to speak with you today. Uh, thanks for the invitation. It was great being on your show. Our thanks again to Harris Amber Lucas BSC for joining us today. The Camera Report is produced by Brad Malone and Sean Malone. And for more information on our show or news about upcoming guests, please search for Waterfoot Films on Facebook and like us to see updates. Or visit our website at www.waterfootfilms.com. I'm Sean Malone. Thanks for listening.